Cool. So here with Ricky Alexander, whose uh, new album just came out. Uh, gosh, what is it? Three weeks now? Yeah, just so? about three weeks. Yeah. Uh, Strike up the band. And why don't you tell us a little bit about the album for those that haven't uh, checked it out? Sure. Well, this is a swinging straight ahead um, album that features some of my favorite songs. A lot of them are sort of like lesser known or lesser played. Um, a lot of stuff, you know, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, a lot of 30s songs. I thought that was kind of the golden era of songwriting. So I was trying to bring them back. And so what um, I guess let me ask this, you know, a lot of people that uh a lot of a lot of young musicians that we see growing up, like they immediately are are drawn to people like Kamasi Washington or, or stuff like that. So, what drew you to this era of music, and and why why do you feel so um uh, strongly better? Like, what what do you like so much about it? You know? Sure. Yeah. Well, I I I love listening to Kamasi Washington and all sorts of modern stuff. Um, I I think um I had a pretty cool experience when I was in undergraduate um. I got to study with this guy, Dave Robinson, who's Scott Robinson's brother. Scott plays in Maria Schneider's orchestra as well as other um, other prestigious bands. Um, and uh, so Dave Robinson ran a uh, band called the Capital Focus Jazz Band. It was a student organization. Um, and he would teach us about, you know, King Oliver and Jelly Roll Morton. And it got me really excited about, like, 20s kind of stuff, um, playing a lot of clarinet. So I started getting my clarinet chops together a little bit earlier. And um, and from there, it sort of, you know, it sort of evolved into early swing. And, uh, you know, I've always been a huge fan of like Stan Getz and Lester Young. And, uh, you know, through this band, I was able to discover like Frankie Drumbauer, who was a who was a big influence on uh, Lester Young. So um kind of tracing that lineage right. all the way backwards and forwards, you know, it was really exciting for me. Yeah. I, I mean, I get that. I've like, uh, I'm assuming you've done, you've played like swing dances and, and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. and seeing like the different type of, um, I don't know, vibe or, or energy that, that might come along with, with this stuff and how it's uh, perceived by the audience. Do you find that, um, to be different, like when you've played, you know, more bop gigs or, or certain things, like how do you, how do you view the, the response from your audience? Sure. Well, it's definitely, um, it tends to be a very approachable music, um, you know, for the layman or for people that, uh, that just like dancing and like listening, but they don't maybe know music theory. Um, so it's, it's really cool to be able to connect with an audience that way and to be able to share a kind of energy. You know, I, I think that same, that same energy can apply to other musics. Like, you know, when you listen to Cannonball Adderley, it's just filled with so much joy and you, you, it really affects you in a certain way. And I think, you know, early swing music sort of affects you, kind of makes you want to dance around and, and feel good. You know, I feel like Louis Armstrong was, was the master of, of creating s such a strong energy that, uh, that you just have to respond physically. You know, it's, it's, uh, such a connection. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you, um, you know, and, and this is definitely on the due to some ignorance of, you know, maybe younger musicians, but speak a little bit about maybe how studying people, not just in the early style has also influenced your playing back into it. Because, you know, some people see like, well, once you start being able to play like Joe Henderson or whatever, like, why do I ever need to be able to play like lesser, younger Ben Webster beforehand? You know, of course, of course. Um, 
you know, you got to play what you're excited about. Um, but you know, something that I think is kind of important that gets looked over is, uh, you know, if you, if you play like, if you want to play like Joe Henderson, you, you might want to like think about who was he listening to when he was growing up and, and really immerse yourself in his perspective. And, and, you know, through that lens, I kind of found myself being pushed farther and farther backwards in time. Um, and so, you know, in order to do this, you know, so my record is, is a lot more kind of like 50s, maybe early 60s kind of swinging stuff. Um, but in order to accomplish that, I've spent a lot of time, you know, listening to and playing the music of, you know, the influencers of, of Stan Getz and uh, people like that. So it's really about kind of immersion and, uh, you know, taking the perspective of the person that you're idolizing and trying to emulate. Yeah. Now, who would you say would be um, like if you could give me your top, I don't know, four. I know this is like a tough, tough question for any musicians, but, you know, yeah, like yeah. who's your top guys that like you like if you were to recommend to somebody um, a younger musician who really wanted to check this stuff out, uh, who would you be like, go check this out? That, you know, isn't maybe the obvious like Sidney Bechet or Louis Armstrong or, or, or something along those lines. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I've thought a little bit about this. I, I sort of have come up with um, a lineage of 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 players that sort of share my, you know, so some characteristics in playing that I really like are kind of, you know, it's very melodic and uh, the time has to be really good um, and just, you know, kind of like beautiful flowing ideas. So, um, you know, somebody who's alive and around today, I got to actually sit in with him um just just on Friday at the 75 Club, which is a cool new jazz club downtown. Anyway, um, Harry Allen, um, I think a lot of young guys are getting hip to him. I started listening to him when I was in high school. He's got a couple albums with Joe Cohn, who's a, who's a genius guitar player, and they just get along so well, and it's, it's mixed so well, and it's swinging. And, uh, you know, if you look at his influences, you know, Ben Webster, uh, Stan Getz, Zoot Sims, a lot of West Coast stuff. Um, but I like to think of Stan Getz as his biggest influence, who is, again, somebody who I've, I've transcribed a ton of. I absolutely love the flowing ideas. So uh, Harry Allen, back to Stan Getz. And then before him, um, Lester Young. And I think, I hope I recall this this little anecdote correctly, but um, I, th I think there was a time, I hope somebody will, will email me and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, <laughs> there was a time when... Uh, when Lester Young and Stan Getz sort of met and, uh, and, uh, some, I think Lester Young said to Stan something like, wow, you get, you get, you get paid to play my lines more than I get paid <laughs> to, to play my lines. So it's, it, it, you know, he was such a strong influence. Um, yeah. so, you know, that would be the third one is Lester Young. Um, and then, you know, I started getting curious about Lester Young. I started listening to these 1934 and, uh, recordings um, with the uh, Kansas City Six, which was it was just Count Basie's first band, and he wasn't even on this date. And Lester Young is playing clarinet, and it's beautiful. And, uh, you know, so I started getting curious about, about going even further back in time and uh, discovered uh, Frankie Trumbauer, who is like, he's got this sweet C melody saxophone sound, which... Um, you know, I, I, a lot of people maybe haven't heard the C melody a lot, but it's it's kind of got this muffled, kind of beautiful, warm, full, rich tone. And uh, and Frankie sort of has these two modes in which he plays. One is like very ultra sensitive and beautiful, 
and one is like ultra goofy, um, kind of like so. If you listen to uh, da 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 da, da um, somebody will find that name of that tune. Anyway, oh he, oh yeah 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 okay uh, yeah I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and he get he just gets super goofy. Um, and so anyway, you know, those would be my big four, starting with uh, you know Harry Allen currently going back through Stan Getz, Lester Young, and uh, Frankie Trumbauer. Okay. Now, what um you, you spoke a lot about how, or, or a little bit, I guess, about how um you you thought that this was like the golden age of compositions. Can you talk a bit, a little bit about that? Like, why do you like what? What about these compositions speak so much to you? What do you what what draws you to them? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I was just talking. I was playing a gig with this guy, Alan Carey, who's like a ninety year old banjo and guitar player, and he's uh. He's such an academic and I look up to him so much. He, you know, he has the original sheet music for all of these songs from like the forties back, all these pop songs. And, uh, he knows all the original changes and, and he'll, uh, every time I play a gig with him, I'll learn something. And, um, we were just chatting the other day and, uh, he, he sort of agreed when I, when I brought this point up that the thirties were su such a golden era of, of writing. I think, you know, if you look at a lot of twenties songs, a lot of them are um, fairly rigid with their, um, you know, the amount of bars in the verse and the amount of bars in the chorus. And they, ten they tend to be, you know, of course, there are exceptions. I, I love a lot of 20s tunes. I play them all the time, um, especially rags that are super interesting. But um, in general, the pop songs were a little bit more sing-songy and based out of like traditional leader um but when you get into like 30s pop songs, I feel like, you know, the verses were could be really long. Um, they were breaking more rules with their chord changes. You know, if you listen to the Irving Berlin songs, he's he's throwing in like crazy chord changes, a lot of descending sharp four or going down as a substitution. Um, and, and so it's it's just it's a lot more harmonically rich. And, um, you know, of course, another big part of this was. um was films um and and having uh having the writers um the 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 writers for the music write for the for the films um and so they became a lot more popular through that they were very cinematic in a way um now, so do it, you write it, really cool i i write just a little bit i sort of write when something comes to me but i'm not i'm not really practiced and schooled in like the art of composition um I do yeah. have one original composition on the new record, um, and it just sort of came to me. My mom said it sounded a little bit like, uh, tie me a ribbon round the old oak tree. Um, <laughs> that, that Sinatra does that one. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think yeah, I'm yeah. singing it right. But uh, but um, I decided it was different enough. Uh, I wasn't infringing on any copyrights. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I just write a little bit. Do you, how would you say, um, cause I mean, like, obviously when we're going down this, uh, jazz tradition and whatnot, um, we're very influenced by who we love. So when you're like compositionally, when you're writing, um, and, and I'm even almost more interested because like you describe yourself as not being like versed as a, as a composer or something. Um, how, what do you pull from these compositions that you try to make sure that you incorporate into your music? Well, um, so, you know, I guess it's, it's really happened through 
immersion, um, and it hasn't been so much of a conscious um, thought process. Uh, but, you know, I keep in mind, I think a lot of intervals that tend to be present, um, you know, sixths and, uh, you know, certain extensions I'm more prone to using. Um, and of course, you know, like a working within the rules of a chord structure that's that's traditional but still trying to be um you know fresh with it so i i tried to accomplish that i was kind of happy with the uh the composition for for the new album um because i felt like it was different you know it wasn't a contrafact it was a it was a fresh set of changes and the melody um you know it, it kind of got stuck in my head and i was you know it doesn't happen a lot when i write something it gets stuck in my head so i was happy with it Right. 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 Well, okay. So let me ask you this. Um, you're in New York now, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously New York, like I think everyone sees New York as like where the, you know, where all this like modern jazz is going on and where all the straight ahead stuff, but there's like a variety of scenes up there, you know, for whatever you want to do, obviously. Um, it's huge. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think some people that might be into this, um, you know, the more uh, traditional is not necessarily the right word I want to use, but like the earlier um, years of jazz, they might feel a little intimidated by whether how approachable it is nowadays or whether if it's still thriving in that sense, you know, because obviously you have people that like say, we'll stop living in the past, you know, and, and like all that out the window, like how do you, what advice do you have for someone that's like really about this and wanting to do it moving forward? Sure. Um, well, when I first moved to town, I, um, I was lucky to play, you know, that, that student group I mentioned, the Capital Focus Jazz Band, um, with Dave Robinson. He took us on the Jazz Fest at Sea, which is, um, you know, it features Alan and Warren Vachet and, uh, Harry Allen was on the cruise. Um, and a lot of folks, um, that are, that are sort of like the old guard and, and the champions of, of this scene. Um, and I, so I got to meet them before I moved to the city or right as I was moving to the city and learn about where I should hang out and what are the cool spots. And, uh, I was pointed towards, um, this now fairly famous, uh, jam session at Mona's, which is, you know, 14th street, uh, Avenue B and it's Tuesday nights, you know, 11 PM to 4 AM real jazz hours, as I like to say. Um, and it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great scene for sitting in and it's thriving and it's inclusive. And, you know, everybody, I think it learns a lot. Um, it draws a lot of talent. So that's been incredible. Um, and then, you know, I'm lucky, you know, New York is probably one of the few or, or maybe the only place in the world where you can make a living just playing a niche style of jazz. You know, I'm working every night and I'm, I, I don't have to play you know, pop music, uh, current pop music at weddings and stuff. Um, I'm, I'm lucky I get to do what I want to do. So, you know, on Monday night, I'm playing with uh, Terry Waldo, who's a stride piano legend. We play old King Oliver and Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong Hot Fives, you know, kind of stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm playing tonight with the uh, Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks. Uh, mm. They won a Grammy for the Boardwalk Empire soundtrack, as well as tons of other film stuff. He's been leading this band for you know 30 years or more i i believe and uh you know <laughs> i've been over to his house and he has you know sixty thousand stock chart arrangements wow. uh, he's got a whole museum basically in this house it's it's incredible it's, it's a treasure trove of knowledge um and it's totally happening you know he doesn't 
he doesn't play the tunes exactly as they were on the recordings. He 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 gives the guys room to blow often, and he uh, he he likes to sort of make a real show out of it and play play tempos that are really exciting, and it really keeps it alive. It's it's a huge scene. He plays every Monday and Tuesday. So if you're new to New York, I would say that's a must see. Um, you know, and then, you know, other nights of the week I'm playing with, you know, my good friend Mike Davis leads a band called The New Wonders. That's like very traditional, you know, after the New Orleans guys had moved to New York, kind of um, that kind of style, Red Nichols, Bix Beiderbeck. Um, and then, you know, I mentioned before the 75 Club, that's got a ton right. of great, like, straight ahead 50s guys. You know, Michael Kanan is a friend of mine, um, plays there all the time. Uh and it's it's just a great it's a great scene for that um more of a 50s thing um you know and on the weekends i'm i'm playing a variety of things so it's you know every single night um at least a, you know a gig totally immersed in this in this scene it's it's really thriving and i'm i'm really lucky to be able to do that um now do you do you teach often do you take on private students i know like you're you're basically what you are i mean making your living playing right now um but how do you What's your experience with teaching? Yeah, I um I haven't taught in a long time. I've been I've been lucky to just be able to play, but um you know, when I was back in Maryland, I went to the University of Maryland for my undergrad. I, I taught a bunch there. Um uh, mostly young students and that was fun. Um but you know, I sort of, I sort of went through a phase where I would try to line them all up on Sunday and sometimes I'd have like 12 lessons and I'm driving to them all. And I got a little burnt out. I think I pushed myself too hard with the teaching. So I'm really trying to focus on playing and um and and I'm lucky to be able to do that, you know, enough. Well, I you know, and I, I ask you that kind of to to lead into this. I you know, I went to Florida State University, um, which was a very um traditional school, I guess in that sense. Like we spent a couple weeks, like in some classes, studying like the arranging and the writing of Jelly Roll Morton. And in, in that sense. And so my question to you is when it comes time to um, expose younger musicians to this, what is your, what are your thoughts? Because I, sometimes I think it might be hard to, to begin with this because it is like, it's, it is difficult. It's deceivingly difficult. You know, like Louis Armstrong was not just playing <laughs> one, three and fives, you know, and it wasn't easy stuff. So how do you how do you expose a student to this with with the you know the difficulties of like well recording quality was obviously bad because of the time and like you know how a, a detailed um you really have to be in this music yeah yeah that um i can i can totally see how the recording technology and and the dated sort of vibe could turn turn somebody off um i uh have had this idea for a little while you know they i feel like um with education, oftentimes, you know, if you if you start with like you know, very complex chord structures, I think a lot of the time there's a lot of students that are just able to sort of skate through, if you know what I mean. And they're, maybe they're not totally hearing all of the changes because they sort of don't have the foundation of just the functional harmony. I mean, I know that because I did that for a long time. Um, but I got to say, you know, learning, um, learning you know, chord structures that make sense and how to play and, and becoming really familiar with guide tones, um, 
through functional harmony ha has made me such a, a stronger modern player, you know, to be able to understand and actually hear the altered scale and use it. Um, I think you really have to, to focus on, uh, <laughs> on the basics for a long right. time. And, you know, I think that's something that, uh, traditional jazz can really, uh, can really help with because it's, you know, it's a, it's a really great way to hear, um, you know, reoccurring, uh, chord changes that are common and, um, and learn to get around on them. And then you're forced to really get creative with it, um, really quickly, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree. It's just something that I know, um, I've always struggled with, with, uh, with students or something, you know, trying to introduce them to some Jelly Roll Mortons or like the, uh, the recordings where it's like Jelly Roll Morton and King Oliver playing duo. And they're just like, well, you know, I can't really hear anything. And it's like, well, you need to open your ears because this is some killing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you, that's, it's amazing. And you spoke some about, um, how you love Stan Getz. So mm -hmm. how has that whole, or, or the, the whole like bossa influence of Stan Getz and like the Afro-Cuban and, and all of that, how have you brought that maybe into your point? Cause he's certainly, you know, very associated with that and with Joe Beam and, and whatnot and something that he was, you know, loved a lot. Yeah, that, that's very true. Um, I listen to a lot of his bop stuff. Um, I really love those roost sessions with Jimmy Rainey, uh, and I've got a bunch of records of him just totally tearing it up in, in bop, in the bop sense. But uh, definitely, you know, so the bossa is is um, is certainly harmonically a step, you could say, is like more advanced or it's a little bit more, um, they use different extensions. It's sort of like a different uh, lens. And being able to hear, you know the 13 on what is it the minor uh the minor six chord going down or that they use all the time or on or on the dominant three chord or something they 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 have all of these extensions that sound so unique and that's another way that's it's great to hear it um and be be able to like you know flex your uh flex your relative pitch muscle and stuff um but yeah in terms of in terms of you know the songs i i would say there's a parallel with with those bossa compositions the joe beam stuff um and the the 30s tunes in the sense that they have sometimes they have odd bars um and, and extra you know extra bars in certain phrases um and also just the basic like beautiful melodies and and like there's certain intervals that are recurring that are just so gorgeous to us you know like going down a minor six or or uh yeah, certain leaps um that uh that i think sort of can parallel you know um, yeah yeah so um you know kind of getting to uh <laughs> the questions that i hope you know the answer because none of us seem to know the answer um what do you think is what do you think is going to happen to to the music nowadays like obviously in in new york and whatnot like you said like you're very fortunate that it's it's an area where you can make a living playing whatever niche version of jazz or, or music, whatever you'd like, because it's so, uh, culturally, uh, dense and all. Um, but where do you see, uh, jazz going now? You know, we kind of saw like a resurgence of traditional jazz in that aspect when like uh, jazz at Lincoln center was really blowing up, um, and the way that mm -hmm. they've celebrated it with the big band and whatnot. But how do you see, um, that moving forward and, and maybe even, you know, what people deem modern jazz moving forward? Like, what do you want to see happen and, and what do you 
think might actually happen if it if it differs in maybe our dream scenario of us selling out Madison Square Garden or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I I have a very optimistic um, sort of view about this. Uh, I, they talked a little bit about this. You know, I went to grad school at NYU, and I had one professor who talked about this idea. You know, that we're, we're so much more connected than ever before. We we don't. You know, if we want to be relatively famous, we don't have to get into Tower Records and hope that we sell CDs. We can sell CDs on the internet. You can buy my CD on my website, and so. I have the ability now to reach an audience across the entire world. And I think that this, this sort of phenomenon is, is going to bring in like a, a larger middle class of musicians and, and people are able to share niche interests, you know, in a, in a split second across the internet all over the world. So in, in my, you know, ideal moving forward, I think that jazz in general is going to bloom it's just going to continue to get bigger there's going to be a larger audience for um all sorts of different music and uh, people are going to be able to become exposed um and access new artists creating stuff that they like um anywhere in the world you know yeah yeah i mean i i completely agree i think one of the things that was really um that a lot of people often forget maybe now that we're we you know we're we're pretty dis um disattached to maybe the earlier stuff just because of like time going on like there's so much music in between um and unfortunately a lot of people don't check it out but they tend to loot uh, forget that um you know some of the foundation reasons behind why we why like we made the music you know that we were you know entertainers and and whatnot and for people to to just enjoy rather than necessarily um some other stuff, you know, which, which has its own merit and value, you know, not trying to discredit anything in that regards. Of course. Yeah, no, I hear you. I I think, um, I've always been a little bit of a people pleaser. And so, you know, I, I need, I need a certain level of creativity and I need in my music that I play and I need a certain level of, of feeling, you know, fresh and, and the energy of the band, you know, working together and uh and really nuanced like it, the the music to me has to be very high quality but i also do enjoy when the audience can connect with it you know and uh taking yeah. the taking the layman's perspective in terms of your musicality i think is a very important tool you know if you get too insulated in a bubble sometimes it, and listen i i think it's amazing i i love to play modern jazz and i love to play free but i tend to do it with my friends in a closed room just for ourselves, you know, and, and I, I have a hard time trying, you know, I get a little bit uh, anxious if I, in a club, if I have, if I'm imposing this on an audience, cause I can't imagine, unless they're total academics in music, um, you know, it, it may be enjoyable for some people, but um, it may be hard to connect with also, you know? No, I mean, I, I get you. Um, but you know, to change up the pace a little bit here, I'm a firm believer, uh, and I I think Nick is too. Uh, I hope if not, that'll be weird. Um, that a lot of people <laughs> check out us uh, nowadays, maybe less for the music, but more because they like us as individuals. You know, like like they buy into Ricky Alexander and they invest their their interest in Ricky Alexander. So um, to change it up, let's you know let's talk about a couple things that maybe aren't music related. 
um, <laughs> like, sure. what was the last book you read? Ah, well, I can tell you the most um, profound book that I read recently. Um, okay. Thinking Fast and Slow by uh, Daniel Kahneman. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, this, um, it's, it's very trendy now to write about um, behavioral economics or basically, you know, psychology and economics. But, but this guy won a Nobel Prize for, um, for uh, coming up with a theory of loss aversion where humans feel uh, losses significantly worse than we feel an equal amount of gains. Basically, if you get $10, you may feel 10 points of good, uh, but if you lose $10, you might feel, you know, 15 or 20 points of bad. Um, and, and so, he, you know, he goes through this whole book and talks about human nature in a very measured way, a very quant quantifiable way. Um, and it was just totally fascinating to, uh, <laughs> to hear about, you know, the human psychology like that. Yeah, no, that yeah, I wrote that down. That sounds uh, he, sounds like he knows a couple things, you know, with a Nobel Prize or something. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah. What are what would you you know? And this is a tricky question for a lot of musicians. Um, what do you do hobby wise, like when you're not doing music? Because I don't know about you, but I need <laughs> like an escape every now and then. Of course, of course, I totally hear you. Um, yeah, no, I spend a lot of time with the music. I also, you know, I went through a, it's it's been a couple months, but I um I've been brewing beer for um you know, 5 or I mean almost 10 years actually. Uh, my wow. uncle taught me when I was about 20 years old. Okay. And um and I've got a little kegerator set up in my in my kitchen and um and in fact I worked at this homebrew shop in Brooklyn. It's now the only homebrew shop left in New York City. Um, so they have such a knowledgeable staff. It was really fun. They would do stuff like they would brew one batch of beer all the same, except pitch different yeasts in each, in each little container. So you could try in a controlled sort of setting, you know, exactly what the difference in the yeast uh, and the tastes were. And, you know, they were super scientific about it and it was really fascinating. So, so that's been sort of a fun hobby for me. <laughs> no, that's interesting to hear you say that. Cause you know, the average person nowadays, you might be like, Hey, what, what do you like in your beer? And they're like, ah, I like IPA or I like dark beer. And you know, yeah, that's yeah, the, right. that's the equivalent that there is. <laughs> yeah, no, it's totally true. I, I'm just glad that uh, people tend to be drinking better beers than, you know, 20 years ago. Truth. Because I swear if I ever go to another party and someone just offers me a Miller and that's like the only option that we have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a time and a place for those, for those light beers. Um, but it shouldn't be the only option. Right, right. Um, what do you, yeah. what, what is like your go-to favorite meal that like, if you have to have something like this is it? <laughs> um, yeah, I go through phases. Sometimes I'll just have cheese and crackers for dinner. Um, but you know, I guess, um, yeah, what do I really like? Uh, and can you cook it? That's the other thing. Can you cook the meal? Cause I've learned like a lot of people in New York don't cook. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I used to cook so much and, and I hardly ever do anymore. You know, when you play a gig every night, you get gig food most of these nights. So, right. um, you know, I got to say one of my favorite places to play is, um, this, this spot in, in Williamsburg in Brooklyn called St. Maisie, um, bar and supper club. They have music like, you know, t two different acts every single night. And, uh, they have like such an amazing, um, hospitality towards their musicians. Every time I play there, I feel so warm and they make this, um, 
porchetta, you know, it's like a, it's like a pork, uh, loin, like a really big one that they cut flat and stuff with garlic and herbs and roll it back up and then, uh, and then, and then bake it off for a while. And it's, it's just like absolutely delicious. And I look forward to that every time. And the answer is no, I have not cooked it, but <laughs> I would like to, uh, attempt it one day. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I mean, no, no time like the present. Um, <laughs> right. Well, man, and thank you so much, you know, for doing the, the interview. It's, it's, it's always interesting to hear people's, uh, different, uh, philosophies and, and interests in that regards. And if you guys haven't had the opportunity yet, uh, make sure you go to Spotify, uh, Ricky's website, uh, iTunes, YouTube, you know, wherever, like you were putting up those, those great videos of, of some standards. I think I was watching, uh, just squeeze me the other day. Uh, mm -hmm. So make sure you guys check up his new band sh or sh new album, excuse me, strike up the band. Um, and we're excited to see what happens next. <laughs>